history of mankind, both biblically and in the secular world, is really in many ways a history of betrayal. Uh, there have been a number of uh, notable betrayals, treasons in history. Of course, we start off in the Bible with Cain killing his brother Abel. Uh, we made a reference uh, last week to Absalom, son of David, uh, re- leading a rebellion against David himself. In our own country, of course, Benedict Arnold is a famous uh, betrayer of the American cause as he tried to give away plans uh, for the fortifications at West Point. Uh, to the British uh, Gustavus Adolphus, the great hero of Protestantism in uh, the Thirty Years' War, who in a sense saved Europe for free worship, was uh, possibly betrayed by one of his lieutenants, Wang Jingwei, uh, helped form uh, the, uh, uh, the Japanese province of Manchukuo out of the Chinese province of Manchuria, betraying his own people. The Rosenbergs sold Soviet uh, secrets of uh, nuclear power that we had here in America to the Soviet Union. The list goes on and on and on and on. People who were in a trusted position who betrayed their trust for one reason or another. But none of those people betrayed our Lord with a kiss. And that's what we're going to see today in the arrest of Jesus Christ, where one of his most trusted people, one of the twelve betrays Jesus with one of the greatest signs of affection that a human can give to another human. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as the Lord himself invites us to be with him in the garden on the night of his arrest. Father, in faith we turn to you, we turn to uh, to your scriptures, and we look at this account of your arrest in the garden And Lord, if I were to be completely honest with my congregation here, I struggle with the sadness of these episodes. And we all do, Lord. We love you. And to see you maltreated and betrayed and arrested and abused and crucified, it's just sobering and it's just sort of hard. And to be honest with you, it's hard to preach sometimes. There's just this sense of sadness that comes. But we thank you, God, that our story does not end with you hanging on the cross. Our story ends and begins with an open tomb, a resurrected Lord, and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. So as we look at this account, I pray that you would increase our love and our gratitude for what you did for us and increase our hope for the future to come. Bless us now as you invite us in this most intimate of episodes in the garden. In Christ's name, amen. Please look at Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 43 through 52 today. You might find your home group helps insert helpful to you as we go through this. I want to read the, uh, the, the entire passage to you, and then we'll break down its various parts. But just to kind of give you, again, the background, if you've not been tracking along with us through the Gospel of Mark for these, uh, well, it's been over a year now as we've been going through Mark, and we're starting to uh, get to the end, probably, uh, probably the first or second week in August. Uh, we'll be finishing up, Lord willing. But we're in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. The Lord has celebrated the first Lord's Supper, the last Passover feast with his disciples. And at that meal, he said that one of you is going to betray me. And as clear as that was, and Judas even leaving the room to go 
betray him, they thought he was shopping. <laughs> they were confused by that. Uh, it, no matter how clear the Lord was sometimes, they, they just didn't connect the dots because Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they thought he would be, according to the teaching of the rabbis. Then they sang a hymn, a psalm, and then they went to the garden, and then Jesus needed some time in prayer. And he wrestled, in a sense, with the Lord in prayer, and he asked the Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup of God's wrath. For Jesus not only was facing a torturous death on the cross, which he was aware of, and betrayal of friends and the leaving of friends, which he was aware of, but he also faced separation from God the Father for the first time ever in all eternity as he took on your sin on the cross and that separation broke his heart. So he asked, God, is there a plan B? If there's a plan B, show it now. And God said, basically, there is no plan B. There is no other way for man to be saved other than through the death of the perfect Son of God. In a sense, the greatest trial that Jesus experienced is now over. He wrestled in prayer to the point, the intensity was to the point that blood came from his forehead through his sweat. And the Lord said, no, as we decided before and long ago, you're going to have to go through this. So in some ways, the decision is made. Now he moves forward with a confident courage towards that cross, towards the betrayal, towards all those things. None of them catches it off guard. He has gotten the Lord's answer, and he is moving forward towards the conclusion of the reason why he came. As we uh, look at this passage today, you're going to see the word seize four different times. In some ways, that, that seizing kind of summarizes exactly what we're looking at today. Uh, as uh, Gundry said, that the opponents who come to arrest Jesus Christ had a hell-bent animosity towards Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul said this, that every aspect of this incident indicates an action committed by the children of darkness. And you do. You just see profound evil reaching out and grabbing the most perfect man that ever lived. So we join the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden on the night that he was betrayed. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. God says, and Mark writes, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, he immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come with me with, out to me with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled." And they all left him and fled. And a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. This is the word of the Lord. 
As we look at this passage, we see five basically uh, parts of this outline here. We see approach by the mob in verses 43, uh, betrayal with a kiss in verses 44 through 46, defended foolishly in verse 47, treated as a robber in verses 48 through 49, and then abandoned by all in verse 50 through 52. First of all, you see this approaching of, of the mob here. And he says this immediately while he was still speaking. What was he still speaking? Well, this is the downside of breaking up uh, components of, uh, of Scripture and teaching them every Sunday. You kind of miss the bigger story if you weren't here last Sunday. Uh, but what he was just saying, the verses prior to this, if you look at your Scriptures, it says this, that Jesus is talking to them. As he was praying, he gave them instructions, especially his, uh, his closest three, James and John and Peter. And, he, and the instructions were this, watch and pray, watch and pray. But they had had a long night. They had had a big meal. It was about two in the morning. They had had four cups of wine. They had had a long day and they got drowsy and they fell asleep and they fell asleep three times. And they, we, we're a little sympathetic. <laughs> We've all had long nights, and we can understand that. But Jesus gave them a direct... Jesus was, this was the most difficult hour of Jesus' life. And he needed friendship. He needed them to stay and pray and help him. And they failed him. Well, by the time he comes back the third time... By the way, they've had two naps by this time. He comes up, he says, it's just too late. It's too late. There does come a time when it's just too late to repent. And he says this, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. I just, I, I'm impressed by his calm resolve. I mean, here's this huge mob moving towards that peaceful serene, dark, wonderful garden in the middle of the night. And he says, it's just too late. It's time for us to be getting on with the Lord's work here. And then, of course, it says here, Judas came up uh, with them, one of the 12. Judas had left the upper room uh, early, uh, and then he went on to the, the chiefs of Judaism, the Sanhedrin. Uh, they quickly formed a... Um, a cohort of, uh, of Roman soldiers and temple guards. Uh, and basically, uh, I think probably uh, they got the attention of the Romans by saying, you know, we got a brigand at hand. We got a guy that wants to lead a rebellion. They're calling him king. We need to get some forces together. And they pull out all these forces. How would you like to be one of those soldiers to get that call at 2 in the morning? My son, was he, he was in the Navy. Uh, he missed a couple of holidays because he was on watch duty. And watch duty is exactly that. You're the guy on the telephone, and you sit there and watch the telephone during the holidays in case North Korea goes over the DMZ or Russia decides to invade Germany or something like that. And it's, and it's watch duty because you just watch the phone because they didn't do that. It's one of those things, you, you really hope that phone doesn't ring. Well, wouldn't it be interesting if I was the guy on watch duty when North Korea... Anyway... Uh, He's up, these guys are on watch duty. They're asleep. They're just, I mean, no one wants to go do this, but all of a sudden, there's a brigand we've got to go grab. There's a guy that wants to lead a rebellion. We're told we've got to go arrest him. So they, they pull all these troops together here on uh, the quiet of the garden. It's, it's, you can just see this, the mob coming through there and just sort of trampling everything on their, in their desire to get to Jesus here. Um, the Gospel of John describes Judas, Jesus as heading up a cohort 
which is or the NIV calls it a detachment of soldiers uh, and attended by a tribune or a commander at the arrest of Jesus. Uh, a cohort was a tenth of a Roman legion or about 600 soldiers. But now the numbers varied sometimes. I don't even know how they'd get 600 soldiers on the street, but that's what a true cohort uh, was. But it's interesting here that Mark doesn't mention the Roman presence. Do you remember who Mark is writing to? Romans. <laughs> He's writing to the church in Rome. And, uh, and I think it's just a, it's an example to us of, of, boy, we stand for the truth, but we also show grace and we also are careful sometimes with our words. So it wasn't that he didn't want to tell them the whole truth. He just thought that was a detail that didn't need to be told to the Romans, that the Romans were out there arresting them. All the others mentioned the Romans, you know. So probably a kind of a little interesting note there to Mark as he's writing to the Roman church about this. He leaves that part out here. Um, they had convinced him there was this revolutionary that was going on, and they, they moved forward here uh, to arrest uh, Jesus with all of this, this huge group of people. The, the, the measures that were taken here to arrest him are really somewhat overwhelming here. Uh, and uh, the body of the soldiers actually comes from the, cre- the, the constituent bodies, uh, the group, three different groups that make up the Sanhedrin, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, your, your uh, scripture might say, instead of scribes, it might say teachers of the law. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Teachers of the law are part of a mob to arrest a godly man and take him to a kangaroo court and have him crucified to death at the hands of the Rome. Teachers of the law. They had long forgotten the principle of the law, sticking only to the letter of it and adding more and more and more and more to it. Uh, the, the weapons at hand were swords and clubs. The uh, Romans probably carried the swords. The temple guards probably carried uh, the clubs there. And then we see he's betrayed here with a kiss in verses 40 through 44 through 46. And, and that just adds, adds sort of shocking drama. There would have been so many ways G, Judas could have pointed out Jesus in the crowd. But he decided in just such a sinister dark, I mean, it's almost like Satan is just grinning from ear to ear that he's going to actually use a kiss here. See, Jesus would have looked like any other man in the dark there. They wouldn't have known exactly who he was, but uh, Judas would have known who he was here. So he decides to have this, this sign here, uh, this incredible paradox. A kiss then was a profound uh, showing of honor. Uh, and it's still practiced in the, in the East, where men will kiss men as a show of, of honor here. Uh, but here it was used for an, an evil mission here. Uh, the actual word for kiss here is not just a brief peck on the cheek, but, but a lavishly bestowed hug-type kiss here, uh, so that they would know exactly who it was uh, that, Jesus, that Jesus was. As John, James Edwards said, it was an act of love is performed for a mission of hate. In a parallel passage in Luke chapter 22, it says that as Judas is about to kiss him, Jesus asked the sobering question to Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I mean, he's still giving Judas an opportunity to repent. You're going to come betray the Son of Man? The figure, the Messiah from the Old Testament, you're going to betray him with a kiss? With a kiss? This is what your heart plotted? On this terrible of all evenings, 
He then, uh, Matthew tells us that he looked at Jesus and says, do what you have come for. Because again, he was, it was written in Scripture. So let's take a moment to go to school on Judas. Uh, of all the tragic figures in human history, Judas must be the most tragic. Why? Because he had been gifted with so much. For perhaps three years, he followed all those disciples, was friends with them, uh, spent time with Jesus, heard the Sermon on the Mount, heard all that teaching, saw all the miracles, and yet he betrayed not only Jesus, but he betrayed all of that understanding, all of that insight. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 through 23, where Jesus says this, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That, that passage has sometimes confused us, perhaps, because we look and we think, well, you know, pr- prophesying in your name and casting out demons in your name. I mean, surely that person would be a true believer who could do that kind of thing. Well, if you go back to the gospel accounts, Judas was probably part of that group that did some of these things as they went up into the uh, areas of, of uh, Samaria and Judea around the Sea of Galilee and they cast out demons and they, they preached the word of God. Judas was part of that. He did some of those things. But the key to that verse is this. Jesus says this, I never knew you. Judas was never really known by Jesus. Now, Judas kind of knew who Jesus was, right? But he did not have a saving knowledge. You have to know Jesus, and Jesus has to know you for you to be saved. Judas was not saved. He was lost forever. He would have had all the symbols. Even his disciples uh, would have thought that he was, uh, that he was one, of the, one of them, right? Matthew uh, talks about Judas. Essentially, Mark doesn't mention Judas anymore. He's done with Judas. He, he's a Judas minimalist. <laughs> I'm not going to give this guy more airtime than he needs because he's a traitor and he's a thief and we don't like him. And he snored. Uh, so Matthew goes on and gives this tragic uh, account of what happened with Judas. And then Judas, Matthew 27, And then Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned. He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying an innocent blood. Innocent blood. Isn't that interesting? Even Judas recognized Jesus' innocence. The centurion recognized it. It was just the, those who should have did not. But they said... What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The book of Acts says that when he hung himself, the rope broke and his body fell and smashed on the rocks below. As one commentator says, Judas is the epitome of wasted opportunity and squandered privilege in all of human history. Then we see that he was defended foolishly um, verse 47 gives this account of uh, 600 soldiers and somebody pulls a sword out. <laughs> I mean, uh, and he, but certain one of those who stood by drew his sword. This is, uh, uh, we know he's the Apostle Peter, by the way. John, Mark didn't say, Mark's really gospel is really Peter's gospel. And uh, Mark is, I guess, trying to help Peter save face, even though he's very honest about Peter's uh, foibles. 
but uh, John doesn't have a problem pointing out Peter here. So John says, Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it. Of course, it doesn't shock us that this was Peter that did this, right? And struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. We even know the this, this servant's name. Jesus therefore said to Peter, Put the sword back into his sheath. The cup with the Lord Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Malchus is a common Nabatean Arab or Syrian name, so he was uh, probably an Arab servant of the high priest here. And uh, Peter... Uh, uh, by the way, he cut off his ear. He wasn't going for his ear. He was trying to cut off his head, and he got his ear. So he, he, while he concealed carry, he probably needed to go back to that class and uh, improve his aim a little bit. But, Peter, but then Jesus in Matthew 26 makes this wonderful uh, r- r- uh, reason why Peter really just acted brashly and wasn't even thinking. Do you not think... Matthew 26, 53, Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? 12 legions of angels. Now, though, I, this, I know this shocks you, but I did some math here. A Roman legion was made of 6,000 soldiers. If a single angel killed 185,000 soldiers in a single night, as they did in the siege of uh, Jerusalem in 2 Kings 19.32. Twelve legions of angels is 72,000 angels. And if, think about 72,000 angels, if they were to each kill 185,000 men, you would have something like 13 trillion men that those angels could kill. As I did the calculation, obviously using a calculator, I had to hold my phone this way because there were so many zeros. That's a lot of angels and a lot of power. Do you not think God could use them to help you? Those same angels, those same, that, that 12 legions are still available today. Could have come in and swept him away and smote all those Romans. But the trial... Is part of the reason, is the reason why he came to the earth. Why would he avoid God's will in the suffering when that is exactly suffering that God had willed him to do? It's interesting, too, though, as you go to the account in Luke chapter 22, it says this, but Jesus said, stop, no more of this, stopping Peter with his sword wielding. And he touched his ear, Malchus's ear, and healed him. Here's Malchus, part of this, mob that's going to come and arrest him and Jesus takes the time to heal his severed ear well that just shows you who our Lord is he's treated as a robber you know he asked this question if you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as a robber this is in fulfillment this and hanging between two two thieves fulfillment of Isaiah 53 he was numbered with transgressors they're treating as a robber and he makes this appeal. He says, every day I was with you teaching in the temple. You, you know what I'm about. You've been there. You could have gotten me at any point in time. I am not leading a rebellion. I am teaching people the way, the truth, and the life. And you've got to come over here and manhandle me. And he's basically says, I'm, I'm willing to go with you quietly. This is the Father's will. It was this reason I came here. Now, y'all been trying to kill me for three years. I, we couldn't have any of that. But the time has now come. It's the time of the Passover. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. So the time of my death has now come. So treat me as a robber. 
if you must. And he goes along peacefully with them. I, that, I, I think they would have been a little embarrassed by the overwhelming force when he just surrendered like that. And then he's abandoned by all, verses 50 through 52. He says here, they, they all left him and fled. So evident, Peter, even though he had cut off Malchus's ear, you know, once they got Jesus, they didn't need the others. They all fled. And Jesus predicted this in verse 27. He said, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And every one of them promised, no, we will not abandon you. And Peter says, even if everybody else abandons you, I will not abandon you. I will, I will stick to you to death. And they are just running through the garden. I guess they're probably like those cartoons. They're grabbing each other, <laughs> pulling each other, and they're trying to get in front of each other just to get out of there. They're in absolute terror. And then Mark closes with this kind of strange and, can we be honest, a little bit awkward account of, this, of the streaker here in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And, uh, and Mark's the only one that mentions this. And a certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. When you read that, do you just feel a little awkward, feel a little shame? maybe placing yourself in that awkward position now why is it that mark is the only one who mentions this well from these account from this account we can gather a few things first of all the the young man mentioned here was wealthy because the wealthy wore linen he evidently got there so quick all he did was take a linen garment and wrap it around him without the rest of his clothing so perhaps he, and he wasn't one of the 12 he probably joined later on here so you, you start doing some of the math here, and what you actually come up with is that maybe this is Mark. This is way of Mark, Mark's way of kind of inserting himself in the gospel account, and he's basically saying, I was an eyewitness there. Because the upper room where the early church met, where the uh, Lord's Supper was, was uh, said to be Mark's mother's house. So he might have seen all the gathering. He decides to follow them, see what's going on here. That's conjecture. We, we don't know. But it's probably pretty good conjecture that Mark has inserted himself into this situation. But he's, he's pretty honest about what happened, isn't he? Um, in, in kind of an, an awkward way. But it's interesting. There's a lesson here, too. Uh, it's funny, that word he uses, young men, the uh, Septuagint, the Jewish Apocrypha, and Josephus, use that, every time they use that term, young men, it, it designates exceptionally strong and valiant or faithful and wise men. The prophet Amos in chapter 2 uh, gives a prophecy. Flight will perish from the swift, and the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor he who rides the horse will save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors, the twelve, even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day. And that's exactly what happened. In some ways, it's sort of this fulfillment of Amos here in what's going on here. But it, it, it's probably appropriate that you feel a little bit of shame here. That idea of nakedness is a, is a spiritual principle that goes all the way back to the garden. And you remember in Eden, and it's, and it's all of its perfection, that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, naked and not ashamed. And as soon as they fell... As soon as they committed that sin, they wanted to cover up themselves. They wanted to hide themselves from God. 
R.C. Sproul says this, The motif of clothing and nakedness is at the heart of our understanding of redemption. Our own righteousness, we are told, is, is often filthy rags. The only way any of us can stand in God's presence is to be stripped of those rags and then clothed the fresh in the garments of Christ's righteousness. That is the gospel. You and I can never stand in the presence of the holy God unless we are clothed from on high with a righteousness that is not our own. Part of the rest of the story is that Jesus dies. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Jesus dies. He raises from the dead. He fills the church with the Holy Spirit. The church goes out and shares the gospel. Part is, Mark is part of that gospel. Jesus, in his grace, takes that fleeing, cowardly, naked young man and clothes him in righteousness. And he does the same with us. So it's hard for us to read the account of Jesus' arrest, of his prayer in the garden, of his crucifixion. But praise God for all that. For we were naked. And we were trying to get to to heaven on our filthy works, clothing ourselves with good works, which would never work. Jesus removes those by the cross and covers us with his grace. And we'll never be naked again. Father, we thank you for the account, uh, the the truth and the difficulty. Uh, Whenever we read this account, accounts like this, these awkward accounts, we just think about how true the Bible is. This is not propaganda made to, made to, written so these apostles would look good and that we'd make statues out of them. Scripture meets us where we are, fallen people in need of grace. So we, as naked sinners fleeing from you, pray, God, that you would clothe us in righteousness and that we would be able to celebrate that in that righteous clothing forever and ever and ever around the throne of our risen Christ. Bless us in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.